Welcome, everyone, to the Why God Why podcast. I am here with our illustrious producer, Dylan Carnival, and I am here with our fantastic co-host, John Amayo, and we are here And you are the- Oh, that's right. I didn't even introduce myself. I I was so excited to talk about politics. Yeah. Said no. Nope. Uh, jumping right into it. You're... Jumping right into it. I am Peter Englert, the other co-host to Why God Why. Oh, no, not just the other co-host. You're the the uh, stupendous co-host of this podcast. If you give it, then I'll take it. But there you go. There, there you have it. What a great way to start. Today, we are responding to the question, why can't we have normal conversations about the election? We are with author, pastor, seminary grad, mm. um, I think she might even share with us that she has a political background in college. Mm-hmm. Caitlin Scheiss. Am I saying that right, Caitlin? Shess. She- okay. So thank you. She's even gracious. So <laughs> yeah. So we will take Look at it. That. We're 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 showing people how to have conversations here. That's what there I'm talking go. about. Isn't that beautiful? Yeah. Now we can't talk about politics, but other than that, we're fine. Yeah. <laughs> So Caitlin yeah. just recently wrote a book on politics. Uh, yeah. One of our former guests, Michael Ware, yeah. wrote the foreword to that book. So we'll talk a little bit more about that. I don't think we need to intro this much because Ugh. I don't think I've had a normal conversation about <laughs> politics. I don't know. John, do you want to add anything before we go? I don't know, man. I, I so, so here's how I'm entering this conversation, okay? Uh, the, the first presidential debate was... Not too long ago, as we're recording this podcast, it was a couple weeks ago, and oh my goodness, I've uh, that was just a train wreck. I, I don't know anybody on any any either side that was like, "Wow, that was just a fantastic event." I'm just so glad I watched that. It was like, you 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 if you watched that, if you didn't, congratulations. If you did, there's a little part of your soul that died, and it doesn't matter no matter what side you politically fall on. It just was just you know painful, and then. Yes, or a few nights ago, the vice presidential debate was on. That was more. That was that was better than the. But it didn't take anything to get worse than the other one. But my wife actually took a picture of me watching the debate, and I looked really pained. And she was laughing, and she sent it to me as I was watching it on the couch because I was I was antis- I had all this emotion inside of me that I didn't know what to do with. I was feeling very uncomfortable, and it showed in the picture that she took. So. That's uh, how I'm entering this conversation. I don't know. How about you, Peter? How do you enter these topics of conversation and politics and all of that? You know what? I I feel like, and I, I'm curious to hear Caitlin's response. I, I feel like I'm either talking to the polar opposites, whether it's liberals, progressives, or conservative Republican, and like we just can't, like, I know what I can say in front of people and I know like what I can't say. Mm. So that's been the the toughest thing. Um, I want to, we should post that picture. We probably um, should so. post it somewhere. On that note, Caitlin, you didn't know that you were going to do counseling for us also in my life. So <laughs> uh, anyway. Most guests actually do counseling for us. I hope you don't mind. That's just how it works. So I think where we want to start is, so you've written a book on politics in America and I'm wondering with your background um, and your educational expertise and just the fact that you're following this, do you feel like this is the most divisive time in history or do you feel like there's similarities? I'm just kind of curious because we look at this as like an ancillated um, episode, but really is it? What are your thoughts on that? 
Yeah. I mean, on one hand, it, it certainly isn't uh, unusual. We've had lots of division. I mean, I've had some people even in my own church who grew up during the civil rights movement who have been like so divisive now. And it's like, well, I mean, it was incredibly divisive then. It probably was just less divisive in your own community. It was something that felt external to you. And now it feels very personal. Um, so I think there's that dynamic going on. But there's also been a lot of interesting research lately on how people are more likely today to change their policy preferences than their party preferences. And so if their party changes its mind on something, they're going to go that direction. And it almost seems like their affiliation with a party is prior to any of their beliefs about policy. Like it's not, I have all of these political beliefs. And so now I'm coming along and, and picking the party that aligns with it. It's more my identity, my primary community is all brought up in this political party. And so if the politician that leads it is changing his mind or her mind about a policy, then I'm going to go along that way. And if that's true, and, and there's lots of research that suggests that it is, then that kind of explains why it feels more divisive than ever, because we're not having conversations very often about policy or about actually what we could do to serve our communities or to, to have, you know, our neighbors, especially the most vulnerable, be flourishing. Our conversations tend to be about these very divisive party lines, and we all got our language from cable news and talking points from commentators, and we're not actually having real conversations. We're having conversations mediated through the identity and, and community that we have found in parties, and then that means that it's pretty impossible to have a conversation when you're doing it like that. Yeah, that's such a great point. I, that's something I actually hadn't thought of before, is that parties often drive like people's loyalty to the party is often greater than the policy. Yeah. That's something really fascinating. Do you think there's something specific within American, the way that we do politics in America that makes that unique? Or is it just kind of politics in general that that's, that's the case? Yeah. I mean, there's, uh, I'm not a political scientist. Some of them would mm -hmm. tell you that there's some specifics about our two-party system and some of the developments that have happened when it comes to how partisan things have been that have made that more heightened. Um, but I do think regardless of the country you're in or the time period that you're in, there's something really um, captivating about politics in a way that can be quite spiritually dangerous. And so it's never really just you know, here's my policy preference. Here's how I'm voting. You know, I watch the news or I listen to this politician speak and I gained political information. It's always a story that is captivating your attention and, and your affections and your loyalties. And so it makes sense in any context that it would become really difficult for people to, to operate in any other lens than my party has captured. You know, my party has the ultimate solution to what's most wrong in the world. And so I have an almost religious devotion to it and to whoever's leading it or to whatever story it's telling. And so I think that's probably true in most contexts, but I do think we're at a unique point where, for example, a lot of people aren't finding those answers, those stories in the church. Um, people who have left, especially people in my generation who maybe grew up in the church and, and have left it since, where are you going to find that guiding story for your life? There's a really easy answer to that. A politician would be happy to give you that, you know? Um, and I even think those of us who are in churches, sometimes we're going through the, the motions and we aren't telling the same really, you know, global and history spanning redemptive story of scripture that kind of has that really grand narrative that people can can hold on to and can be the guiding focus of their life. So if you're coming in every Sunday and all you're hearing is like 
here's how to live your best life today, then you're still hungry for that really, you know, captivating global historic story. And again, a politician would be really happy to give it to you. And so I think especially now, but probably always, it's just really hard for it not to be working that way. So uh, I think that leads into how is social media affecting it? Now, I think I I haven't met someone that says it's not, but I'm just kind of curious from your perspective, you know, just with your, you know, unique perspective, I mean, you're in Texas, um, you know, good old Dallas Theological Seminary, Rob Catalani, our senior pastor's it, do they still call it alma mater for them? I don't know what you I do don't for seven. Anyways, <laughs> I don't know. Anyways, alma mater, but um, you know, so you're in a fairly, um, you know, we kind of know where Texas is going to vote. Um, we're from New York. Yeah. We kind of know where New York is going to vote. How is social media playing into all of this from your perspective? Yeah, I mean, I, I just recently watched the Social Dilemma on Netflix, which a oh, lot of people have yeah. watched, and is mm -hmm. really terrifying. Um, mm -hmm. but part of what's so terrifying about it, I, I expected to watch it and have it basically shame me for spending so much time on my phone, which it didn't really do. Instead, it was more like these things are created using psychological and sociological data to uniquely, again, capture your full attention, your affections, and also to continually give you content that fits what you already think and the community that you're already a part of. And so you can pretty easily live in kind of an alternate reality online where everyone thinks, you know, a pretty similar way. I mean, I, I thought about this recently when there was a conversation about Trump's tax returns and everyone on my social media feed was saying, you know, I paid this much more than Trump did or whatever, you know, and I wondered to myself how the really conservative, you know, more Trump supporting people in my church were thinking about this. And I realized they're not seeing, I mean, they may have heard this news that they, you know, found some of these tax returns, but they're not seeing it mediated through the same lens that I am. They're seeing it through a totally different, maybe everyone on their feed is saying, you know, he's a really great businessman that he managed to find a way out. You know, I'm not really sure because I'm not in their world, but it was a, it was one of those really good um, tangible examples of like, I am not only receiving information about things that are happening, but I'm receiving it through a very particular lens that partially I have cultivated, right? Humans tend to want mm -hmm to not be disturbed by, you know, a, a position or a viewpoint that's radically different from theirs. You know, that can be, I want to go on Twitter, Instagram and just have fun. And, you know, but also that there's algorithms and intentional, you know, things that are happening in social media that cause us to have that. And I think it then goes back to that same thing of then the language, not just the position that I have, but the language and the lens that I have for talking about politics. When I come to have a conversation with someone, it's not me and this other individual having a conversation. It's really me taking the framework and language that's been given to me. And we already know what, I already know what her framework and language is going to be or his. And, and we kind of, we don't have any ability to get outside of that and meet and have a real conversation because we're just using the same things that we've heard over and over again, that like, you're going to say this and I already know my response to it. Cause I heard mm. it on, you know, I heard it on cable news and I saw it was such a mic drop moment. Like I'm going to grab that stat that they did, you know, and there's not a real conversation that happens. So, so how do you personally, and how would you recommend for us to kind of get out of our echo chamber? Yeah. I mean, one of the kind of just like easy answers that's easy to say, but harder to actually do is to be intentional about diversifying where you're getting your news and the you know relationships that you have. Even if you are struggling to do that in real life, starting online and finding people who are different from you and, and kind of trying to be able to listen to them. The other thing that I've been really trying to practice in my own community, my own church is, 
you know, if we're going to have a conversation about something political or social, cultural, trying to find ways to describe things in language that hasn't been given to me by someone else so that maybe mm. I can, again, have that real conversation with someone that's coming from me and um, not just handed down to me. And then asking sort of disarming questions instead of kind of reverting back to, oh, I already know what you think and I've responded with this, kind of trying to ask questions that maybe force people to realize what's underlying the thing that they're saying. So, for example, you know, if so-and-so becomes president, you know, everything is just going to, to be terrible, you know, some big dramatic threat asking, what are you actually afraid will happen? Like, could we get specific to, to break outside of, you know, oh, I heard this person on the news or on social media give this big dramatic, but really like, what are you personally afraid of? Could we have a conversation about that? Or, mm. you know, you described this policy that you really like that maybe I don't really like instead of saying, well, here's all the reasons that that's wrong. And, and there's a place for that. But instead saying, what is your vision of what your community should look like? Like, what what would you like to see when you walk outside your door? What would you mm. like to see for the people that are most vulnerable? What would you like to see in your church? And then having a conversation where maybe we could be a little more empathetic, but also so that maybe we could figure out, like, I'm used to seeing your position mediated to me through these certain forms and language and stuff. But maybe when I hear kind of some underlying things, I might discover that your position is not the one that I originally thought it was. Maybe I'm a more empathetic to what actually is driving it. Um, and then actually maybe for Christians, at least we might find that what's underlying it is actually a, a pretty serious, like theological or spiritual problem, not just a political difference. So if you can have a strange moment of honesty where you've broken outside the normal forms of communication and asked a surprising question and someone could respond with, yeah, actually this is my fear or actually this is my desire. And it's something that is not what Christians should be desiring or fearing, then that's not a moment to kind of jump on that. You know, I found the the hole in your argument, mm. but especially as, as a pastor or, or someone who's a friend or a family member being able to say, okay, well that, that let's have a conversation about that. You know, why is that the fear that's driving the way you're engaging? Or why is that the desire that you have that if you're being really honest, you know, is not the desire that scripture would have us to have and having that conversation instead of staying on the surface level of stuff that is kind of the same conversation we've already had you know, so many times. Mm, mm. There's something refreshing about the way you're describing that. I think uh, to be able to enter conversations with kind of an open mind and an open heart and being able to engage people honestly and with sincere questions rather than trying to trap them mm -hmm. or, or them trying to trap us. Um, I, I, I'm reflecting back on kind of you saying you you watched the social dilemma on on Netflix, you know, I, I watched it too, and I, I was thinking I was thinking of like I think Facebook is still trying to figure me out because like <laughs> I got like the extremes of both sides on my news feed, and I think Facebook is going where does this guy like what what do we feed him like because like we're we're not quite sure where he stands, so we're gonna give him this extreme and that extreme, and and I'm. Like, I'm not hearing a lot of the middle mm. on my newsfeed. It's a lot of the people from from real extremes, and they don't seem super open to me. Yeah. When, uh, I, maybe they are. I can't judge really where their hearts are at, but it just doesn't seem like there's a lot of openness. And that's on both sides. Yeah. So I've actually had to, I don't know if I should admit this or not on, on the podcast, but I've actually had to unfollow some people for sure. a season because it's so emotionally taxing just to see them continually, you know, 
putting just no there's no openness there's just Mm -hmm. here's my opinion believe it or you're you're just you know just somebody that obviously doesn't have a brain Mm -hmm. so what do you (laughs) i mean yeah like how do you how do you uh deal with people who are kind of so entrenched on their side that it that who knows it just does not seem like they're gonna move at all do have you had to do that yourself Uh, um, you know correct me in this and i'm i'm open to being corrected uh is unfollowing people wrong i don't know peter you probably (laughs) never unfollow anybody you're just Look at him. He's look at him over there. He's just. I, I do unfollow, but Caitlin, <laughs> we want to hear from you. Anyway, I, I don't think that is wrong. No, I have. Oh, oh I have, praise hey, God! Hey, I have right. fully done that too. Yeah. yeah. Um, I do think one of the things. I do think there are some people that you get to a point where you think, "I am praying for you." The Holy Spirit alone can can change your heart. I, you know, that's not a conversation that's going to be fruitful for either of us. But I do think. You know, part of what's been useful for me in my context is trying to kind of have conversations that come out of natural things and less out of you posted this thing on Facebook. So either I'm going to comment or I'm going to have a conversation with you about it or whatever. But, you know, we spent six months in Jeremiah, my Bible study, and it is amazing how many conversations we had about social, cultural, political issues that because they started one from a place of we're all entering this wanting to earnestly understand what scripture says and having generally the same approach to to the authority that it has over us. Um, But also just being in a context where people's barriers are not so high. um, Sometimes um, there's kind of been, especially in the last couple of months, right? Churches or even people, you know, in other kinds of communities at, at my seminary, where we're trying to figure out like, how do we have a conversation about politics? And so the answer is let's get a bunch of people together and have a conversation. And I don't mind that right now. That's what a lot of what I'm doing. So it's fun. But I do think what happens when you do that is people come ready to like be in the position they're in. Um, They come also with all of these words or phrases that whether you intend them to mean something or not, that sparks, you know, oh, you said social justice. I know what that means and I'm against it or I'm for it or I'm, you know, and and it doesn't even matter if you've tried to be really careful, people's barriers are just bam up. And like you're, they, they, you, they want to categorize you as for or against the side that they're on really fast. But if you were to, especially in the church, if we were to treat some of these conversations less as extracurriculars that people have to kind of come on another time and they're already ready to raring to go in the conversation. But if we were to become well-practiced and having them more naturally in contexts where maybe people's barriers are lowered because they're not assuming, you know, when I, when I was teaching with my women in Jeremiah and we were talking about justice and oppression and all these words that if I was to send them an article on Facebook, they would, you know, some of them, their barriers would be up about how to even think about this. But when we're starting with a comfortable conversation in a low temperature environment where barriers are lowered and they trust the authority of scripture, it gives you some more leeway to have conversations that are better. And I think too often we wait until it's a high temperature political issue and we have to have this conversation instead of going, that conversation is never going to be good if we haven't done the practiced work beforehand of like low temperature conversations that maybe even aren't about specific policies yet. They're just about, you know, general issues that frame how we think about those policies in context where people can be a little more open. So I really want to kind of, I want to get super specific. I'm going to go to the vice presidential debate. No, I'm not going to talk about the fly, but uh, that's its own (laughs) social media gold right there. But um, 
so so first of all, you have Kamala Harris, who is the first uh, black vi- uh, female vice presidential candidate. Um, it's an amazing moment. Um, and then you have Mike Pence, who's the vice president, uh, current vice president right now from Indiana. Um, so, you know, all of a sudden, you know, I'm watching this and they're saying that Mike Pence is mansplaining. That's one side of my social media uh-huh. on the on the other side, there's kind of this affirmation of this terrible stereotype of Kamala being an angry black woman, which is unfair. Mm-hmm. You have Kamala, who is an excellent, uh, I understand why she was the attorney general. She knows how to argue. She know, like She's very, very good. Whether or not you agree with her policies or not doesn't matter. And you have someone like Mike Pence that's a little bit more, um, you know, he he has a history in TV and he's talking with it. And so I'm watching this debate and I'm seeing, well, Mike Mike Pence is mansplaining. And then I'm seeing, why is Kamala giving that look? And and I just, I kind of feel like it's unfair to both of those because we don't know their heart and motivation. But also, you know, here's the deal. I'm a white man. I want to make sure that I'm understanding kind of the comments in there. And I guess because this is something that you focus on, I just want you to speak to that specific moment because I think that we're kind of talking past each other without really slowing down to, number one, treat those we agree with and disagree with in the image of God, but also be aware there's some things happening there. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that, um, like you said, one of the things that's hard about interpreting a presidential or a vice presidential debate is that we don't know either. I mean, most of us don't know either of the people personally. And so we are because of like 24 seven media coverage and all of the like technology and internet, we have the ability to analyze just the most minute details about every single thing to a degree that is unhealthy. Um, and that we should not be doing, um, but we have the ability to do it. So we do, um, I do think watching that conversation could be a good opportunity for us all, regardless of, you know, age or race or gender to examine what it looks like again, when you're coming from, because of course they will from their positions that they're in coming from a place where no one is interested in learning. No one is trying to find a place of common ground and watching what happens when people's speech patterns and the way they interact with each other come from that kind of position. And I'm not expecting any kind of debate in in like this level to show us how to have a reasonable conversation. But I do think it could be instructive for us to watch, see what happens when you kind of come from these positions. Um, I also think it could be instructive for us to watch again, as you said, for a really monumental historical moment for a woman who comes from two, you know, intersecting marginalized identities to watch what happens when someone who like Mike Pence is pretty probably unaccustomed to being on a stage like that um, and speaks to her sometimes in ways that show that he is not used to having a woman at that kind of level, having a conversation with him. Um, Not from a place of trying to say, oh, you have to be so overly careful with everything you say when you're talking to a woman or when you're talking to a black woman, but just to say, has history led us to a place where we haven't had adequate um, practice and experience having the right kind of conversation with people who have been historically marginalized? And might I have come into patterns of speaking and interacting with people based off of biases that I may be unaware of? And that up until this point have been kind of 
gone unnoticed or maybe they've never even come out because I haven't been in a lot of relationships with people. And so is it going to be really painful for those things to be called out by people? Yes. And will there be ways that people call it out that are unhelpful? Yes. And will they sometimes call it out too much to the point where you're like, okay, well, that's an example. That, that's not true. Absolutely. But I really hope that as Christians, um, we could have the kind of humble position to say, when someone who is not like me says, this is the way that I this is the way I felt when you were talking to me. This is the way that I perceived your interaction with me, that we would have the ability to say, I will sacrifice even any legitimate right that I feel like I have to talk to you a certain way or to interact a certain way. And I will, I will acquiesce to, to what you have asked. I will, I will repent of any place in my heart that, that might've been biased or prejudiced, even if I'm unaware of it, that's how sin works, you know, and could we kind of come into situations, not trying to defend ourselves, but knowing that we will make mistakes in conversations. And we will especially make mistakes in conversations with people who are not like us. And the question of like, is this right or wrong? Is he mansplaining? Is he, that, that question is, is less interesting to me. And I think less important for Christians than am I just taking every opportunity to be as gracious and kind to other people as possible? And if they have said, this is not a way that's gracious and kind to interact, am I willing to just say, you know what, I'm not even going to argue with you. I'm going to find the best, most gracious way to talk to you. And if it's not the way that I did, then, then I'll be willing to change. Mm. So, you know, I just kind of want to jump on that a little bit. So I've watched you on Twitter. Um, and I just tell me if I'm right or wrong. It seems like, and again, this podcast is for people that have questions that they can't ask in church. It seems like you're harder on Trump supporters, not just because you disagree with Trump, but like this is your family. Like yeah. this is a can you just kind of bring it because even in your last question, you know, you're talking to Mike Pence and that's not necessarily a bad thing. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I do. I just think our listeners are probably going to see you and stuff like that. Why? Why are you so much, um, I don't want to say harder, like I, I feel like you're trying to parent and sometimes parenting, it's like, well, you're just against me. I mean, Christians <laughs> probably can be compared to 16 year olds, but I'd be curious kind of your response to that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, every election season, the conversation usually happens where you say one thing and everyone's like, why didn't you say the thing about the other side? You know, they're bad too. Yeah. And and that's true. And I think there are moments for us to say as Christians, we will have disagreements with both sides. We want to be able to, not just because we exist in this like squishy middle where we have no convictions, but because neither party represents the really convicted political position of citizens of the kingdom of God. Um, however, for American evangelicals, especially for predominantly white churches and American evangelicalism, there has been a very close identification with the Republican Party. There's lots of history and kind of reasons why that's happened. Um, but I think it's pretty fair to say that at least by 2016, we kind of all realized we are in a position where the loyalty of most evangelicals, especially white evangelicals, is really so strongly to this party that they are willing to sacrifice other things for the sake of it. Now, that's not just saying in how you vote. It's also saying in how you describe your support, how you talk about the party, how you talk about the person who is leading the party. Um, I'm not saying if you're an evangelical and you voted for Trump, this is necessarily you. Um, but it's interesting to note how evangelicals, you know, speaking very generally because it's a large group, but how a lot of evangelicals went from kind of 
an interest in Trump, maybe even, you know, not being interested in Trump to kind of careful support, like I'm going to vote, but I don't like it to over time. That's the way that loyalty sort of works. You end up in a position where you thought I'm just going to vote this way, but I'm not, you know, overly supportive of this person to a point where a lot of evangelicals became incredibly supportive of the president in a way that required that they sacrifice their witness. Because when something was done that was evil, when something was said that was evil, they weren't willing to, in in large numbers, um, condemn those things, which doesn't require in a political system, you are always going to, you know, vote for someone who will do or say things that are against, you know, what the Christian faith believes. And it's really a question of if we can strategically and creatively engage so that we can support people, we can vote certain ways. And yet we're never in a position where we say, well, my support means I can't say the truth about what scripture says about the way that someone talks about people made in the image of God, about how nations treat foreigners, about, you know, any of those things. If I have to sacrifice my ability to say the truth about what scripture says in order to support someone, then I am in a position that that I shouldn't be in. And the reason I am so focused on that is because that's more of where my people are. Um, I'm sure there are lots of Christians around the country that have a relationship with the Democratic Party that is not a relationship that they should have. Those are just not the people in my community, the people in my church, um, the people in my kind of broad evangelical tradition that I've grown up in and that I know and that I love. And so I want to say, yes, both things are true. Like you can have an idolatrous relationship. You can have an unhealthy relationship to either party. And yet I don't want in doing that to not be clear about what's happening with my people and not being willing to say, this is the truth about where we are at and, and giving people some comfort and saying, Oh, both sides are really bad. Sometimes then people feel like they can stay where they are instead of recognizing Hey, this is where we're at, and it's not good. Mm. Mm. That's so good. I mean, I, I had a conversation this past week. It ended up being a fairly short conversation, but with somebody who uh, was defending Trump, you know, rather rather strongly, and saying that that uh, you know you you have to you have to vote for you can't vote on personality. You have to vote on uh, policy. And and that was their argument for voting for Trump. Now, it just so happens I know that this person uh, critiqued President Clinton very strongly when they were in office uh, for not policy decisions, but for personal decisions in yeah. their life. And so I saw this dichotomy that's there, and I think it just kind of highlights a little bit of what you're describing, that, that that's reality, for some of, and, and that happens on both sides. I'm sure I'm absolutely positive. Yeah. You know, you know, we, we, uh, are not talking to you from a conservative central here in uh, New York state. It just isn't, you know, that that's not reality. Um, so there's people on other, the other side that are the exact same way. Sure. Um, uh, so my question would be in the midst of this, let's take out the crystal ball for a second and, uh, imagine the future. For us now, now there's doomsdayers on both sides, as you've already alluded to. But you know, th- this will come out. This podcast will come out before the election, or technically, the election is happening right now since mail-in ballots are happening. But whatever, uh, it'll come before election day. So, what if you were to look inside of the crystal ball that you have in front of you right now, which we can see, but our audience can't? Uh, what would you say? that the the end result is going to be after this election. Yeah, I mean, I 
I do not know. I'm, I'm very hopeful um, that I don't mean hopeful in the sense that I believe this will happen. I mean, hopeful in the sense that this is what I want to happen, that at least we will have somewhat of a decisive uh, end <laughs> that we won't be dragging it on forever. I'm, I really hope that, that we don't end up in a situation where we, you know, don't know for a very long time who won or it has to go to the Supreme court, things like that. Um, but one of the things that I, I think a lot about, again, not so much in terms of who wins or, or kind of policy consequences from these things, but more in terms of the state of the church is, like you said, the, the doomsdayers on both sides, fear is a powerful political tool. And so whether we like it or not, even if we want to kind of, you know, keep our heads down until the election is over, people for months now, and especially in the coming month, are going to be shaped by fears that people are, are feeding them. Fears that say that, you know, either side in very different ways, if they win, that's the end of your life, that's the end of your livelihood, um, things that you care about, maybe that's the end of your church or your community or um, your job or things like that. And I think that one of the gifts that Christians can offer the world is that we are resurrection people and we are not swayed by existential threats like that. And so we can make faithful decisions outside of that. But I fear that too often Christians have been quite susceptible, especially in the last you know few years, to threats of if you don't vote a certain way or if this person wins, then that's, that's the end of your religious liberty. That's the end of your church or your life or your job. And what I am concerned about is that we think we can get through the election and then it'll be done and we'll kind of go back to normal. And instead, if people have been shaped and formed by those fears over time, regardless of who wins, that will be something that has been destructive to their souls and will not end at the election. And so are we prepared in our churches to disciple people with that in mind? Not because we just love talking about politics, mm. but because we recognize that politics over the last few months has discipled them in ways that are counter to, to what the gospel would have them be and live and, and especially interact with their whole community. And so I really hope that in our churches, when we're thinking about what happens after the election, yes, we're thinking about, you know, practical questions of like, who wins and what does this mean? And, and I don't think that's, you know, incorrect at all. And yet I don't think we're often very able <laughs> to accurately guess what will happen. You know, we tend to kind of go three steps down the line. Um, we'll do this on both sides about Supreme Court justices or about certain policies of president support. You know, the process is long and messy. And so it doesn't just mean this person wins, this is the result. So what I think would be more fruitful, especially in our churches, is to say, Yes, let's have cool, you know, fun conversations. Like this is the the hot topic to talk about politics for a couple months. But could we long term be thinking how are we going to disciple people who have been shaped by these fears that have been building over months? Mm. Well, I can tell you something we all agree on, and and I'm I'm going to go out there. Larry David is the best <laughs> presidential SNL candidate. I just I got to get that out there. Um, I just pretty good. I, I think he's better oh, than Sarah whoa. Palin, Tina Fey, but I don't think he really needs to. I That's my opinion, but, you know, there we go. She was really good. But Larry David, I don't think he has to do much acting for Bernie Sanders. So I will miss. Yeah. So um, anyways, I just banged the table and Dylan uh, got me in trouble for that. But all good, our producer. Where I really wanted to go with that, though, is a number of our listeners are de-churched, unchurched. Um, and I, I'm just kind of going off so that I did not take a Pew research poll, you know, and I think, but I would say that most millennials and Gen Zers 
are frustrated with the Trump support um, and they're frustrated and they're led away by like, so I hear some Trump supporting parents say things like we didn't teach them right and they didn't learn the Bible right. And they're saying you support Trump. And again, this is just what I'm hearing. I'm not trying to, you know, make this moral, but what would you say to the person that says, I don't want to go to church. I don't want to be part of Christianity because of politics. And we'll even throw both like, you know, the church just seems whether it's too liberal or too conservative, you know, what would you say to that person? Yeah. I mean, one of the things that was comforting to me in 2016, uh, when I was, that was my first semester of seminary was during the 2016 election. Um, it was the second election I had voted in the first one I had been like 18 and, you know, didn't what, didn't know what I was doing. Um, so it felt like really early political participation early in seminary, um, which I had not planned on, on doing. And so it was like, okay, I'm new to like wanting to work in the church and learning all of this, you know, my first semester of Greek and it's so hard. And then 2016 election happens. And like a lot of those young people you described, just really heartbroken over feeling like the principles I was taught that I really did. I mean, I was in Awana, I was in church all the time. Like I learned so much. And similar to, to what you said earlier about watching people um, describe Clinton and personal failures there and the way we talked about character matters. And, and so watching leaders that I trusted not just support someone I didn't support, but describe their support in ways that felt really counter to the way that I had been taught growing up by them was just distressing and really seriously, um, it, that was a hard semester. And so I feel for those people who are just like, I, I can't stay in the church. I don't know where to go. Um, the thing that was comforting for me in that semester was weirdly enough that I was starting Greek and I was working my way th- so painfully through learning this ancient language that no one speaks and trying to read passages in scripture that I already knew how to read in English, but like had to figure out how to read in Greek. And it was weirdly comforting because it was such a tangible reminder that the faith that I held to was ancient and global and that I was the farthest thing from where it started. Like when Jesus says to the ends of the earth, I am the ends of the earth. I am not the center of the picture and neither are the evangelical leaders that are disappointing me. And so it was comforting to remember that the people who were disappointing me did not have a monopoly on my faith. And that even if there were really serious moral failures from them, not just political differences, but but moral, I mean, we've seen that a lot recently too, that it was comforting to remember that they were human and I was human and we would make mistakes, sometimes really egregious ones, but that their faith was not the center of the global historic faith that I held to. And that there were Christians from, you know, hundreds, thousands of years from me in very different cultural contexts who had faced, you know, the fall of the Roman empire, you know, or really, you know, genocides and wars and all of these things that I'm sure they watched leaders act in hypocritical ways and and in moral failing ways. And and I'm sure that it felt destabilizing to them. And it was comforting to remember that the Holy Spirit had sustained the church through all of those things and that the faith was not owned by those people who were disappointing me. And so what I would say to those people is, you know, find a community that, that you, not that is just like you and that agrees with you on everything, but that is faithful at least, and that you don't feel like you know, there are leaders that are acting in, in wildly hypocritical ways or that are overly politically involved in ways that are that are unhealthy for someone in the pastorate. But but more than that, I would say, make sure that you're rooted in a faith that is not dependent on just 
the local pastor that you loved that I hope you have a great relationship with, but that that is not the be all end all of your faith. And that there have been congregations for thousands of years that have faced really difficult things and have been sustained through them. Wow. Wow. Such good, wise, kind of balanced advice. I love hearing that, especially about this topic that we're talking about right now, because it feels so rare in this day and age to hear that kind of just mm-hmm. level-headedness about it. So I appreciate you joining us and talking with us about this. And I, I you know, Peter and I always like to end these conversations with a question that we hope gives people hope at the end of it all. And that's, what would Jesus have to say about this? Because when it, when push comes to shove, I think that's what people are really wondering. In, in this current cultural climate that we're in the midst of, what in the world would Jesus have to say about this? So, Peter, it looks like you're chomping at the bit, ready to go right now. He's, <laughs> look at him. Look at that look in his eyes. He's like a bulldog. You He's know, ready to go. Uh, for those of you listening, because you yeah. all are only listening, yeah. um, I have my vest on, which our senior pastor likes to call the Marty McFly vest. So. Oh. The bulldog look just isn't there. So, <laughs> anyways, um, I think I perceive it as a bulldog look. So, whatever you, you know, know yeah. uh, I'm just training my daughter how to be tough. Yeah. Come on, Haley. So, um, so to respond to John's question, um, there is a commentator by the name of J. Andrew Overman. He wrote a book about Matthew, and I just I, I held on to the, to prepare for this. I held on to this part that he talks about. He says this, Matthew lived and wrote in a time that there was a crisis of leadership and identity. The questions about how to relate to Rome and who would do it remained strong after 70, which it had to deal with the temple. Who was in charge? How would they order their lives in the wake of the temple's destruction? The author of Matthew believed he had the answer to many of these questions that plagued his and other communities in that 70 period. And then he says this, for Matthew and his church, this meant most immediately that they were not in charge of aspect of their lives. For some reason, the empire may have meant opportunity for others, and it meant death and terror to others. And I think about that. I think about the book of Matthew written by a, a person that worked for the Roman government that many Jews saw as anti-Jewish, um, and he became a follower of Jesus, and he writes this book in this moment and he writes things like, you know, why do you worry? Because, you know, I take care of the sparrows, but he also talks about the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the merciful, blessed are those that are poor in spirit. And I think about that book and I think about why it was written in similar times as us. And it just, it reminds me of the simple fact that the good news of the gospel is always good news. Um, it doesn't always feel like it. It may not, your candidate that you hope will become president might not become candidate, but that doesn't change the fact that Jesus is with us. But even more importantly, I think political seasons, and Caitlin, this is why I'm so glad we interviewed you. It reveals idols. It reveals things that we take are more important. So it's not just let go and trust God, but it's saying what part of my heart and life make me need to be right in these conversations to not have normal conversations. And I just think the gospel speaks to that. So, yeah, that's well said. Um, I think as I, uh, I ponder this, I, I think about the story of Jesus crucifixion, which is in reality, a very politically charged event. Um, 
Jesus was not meeting the political expectations of of people at that time. And Pilate, the leader of of Rome in that area, brings out uh, doesn't really wanna he doesn't really wanna punish Jesus, and so he tries to figure out a way around it. And he brings out this revolutionary named Barabbas, and he places Barabbas and Jesus next to each other, and he asks everybody, "Hey, which one should I release to you?" and and the the people and the leaders, the leaders kind of stir up the people to to shout, "Give us Barabbas, this revolutionary, this political. He was going to overthrow Rome." And and then what does what should I do with Jesus? Is the the next question? And they said, "Crucify him." And it almost seems like no matter what side of the political aisle we're on, right? that's the choice if you decide to follow Jesus. It's the choice of, will I do things the world's way or will I do things the slow, the humble, the 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 crucified way of Jesus, which is not even fun to say, actually, but um, and it's certainly not something that our society values, but yet, that's the way that the people of Jesus are called to live like Jesus. And so I feel like that question, if we could get ourselves to the point where we say we choose Jesus, that would dramatically alter the way that we approach conversations about the po- about anything political. So that's what I think. Caitlin, though, you'll probably do a better job than, than we've done on that. Go for it. Bring it home. You, you wrote the book on it. That's true. The, the liturgy of politics. Yes. So. You yes. know, we're, we're, we're excited. I, that's my next book, so I'll be posting The Liturgy it. of Politics, everybody. Go out there and buy it right now. So Just do it. Just do it. Anyways. And, and here's a primer for it. Anyways. going to tell us? Clean up the mess. No, we those were left, both, you know. Those were both beautiful. Um, what I was thinking of was in a moment where everything feels, you know, really unsettled and like things that we thought were certain. I mean, coronavirus being a great example, things we thought were certain are just not certain. Our plans have not, you know, gone the way that we thought. And especially in a political season in which, again, it feels like one side or the other wins and that's the end of the world and and things are really destructive and and divisive and difficult. Um, It really makes me think of of Revelation, not in the sense a lot of people have done it, where it's like, this is the end, you know, let's go back and read all the scary passages. Instead, what I've tended to think of is the very, very end of you know, the voice on the throne saying, behold, I am making all things new. And that is, if that is the mm. end of all things, not us, you know, floating around as souls in heaven and strumming harps and, but like a redeemed creation where God has made all things new. We are in perfect communion with him. And it says right around there too, you know, God has made for himself a new people that are our loyalties, our nationalities, uh, the communities that we are in now are important. They are places for us to witness to the coming kingdom of God. And yet God has made for himself a new people that our primary loyalty, um, the obligations that we have to people are now are now the church, the people of God that span the globe and history and are not defined by the same you know struggles that we have. And so could that end picture not be one that makes us isolated in the political world that says, you know, God's going to come and fix everything. So let's not be involved. But instead to say, if we are already citizens of the kingdom of God, if we already have this political identity that is rooted in eternity, that testifies to something given to us, even in creation of ruling and reigning of stewarding, you know, the good things that God has given, 
if that identity hasn't changed, if in fact, especially for, you know, redeemed believers who have the Holy Spirit in us, that now we get to to give glimpses of that coming kingdom in the communities that we are in, um, how could that final word of God making all things new not be a reason for us to shrug at the difficulties and the material needs of people today, but to say, that's who God is. That's how who his people are in eternity. How can we more faithfully live out being the people of all things new today in the way we vote, but also in the way we serve our communities, the way we mend relationships, the way we seek justice in small ways, um, all of those things that testify to what to what we are promised in eternity that, that God will ultimately create that we cannot do on our own. And yet we have the unique gift by his grace of participating in now. Caitlin, it's been so wonderful to have you on. Thank you. Um, I feel like we just all had yeah. coffee together and we just recorded it in front of everybody. So it's all good. So um, you can find Caitlin Chess at, um, uh, she's on Instagram. We're going to be tagging her on Facebook with this post when it comes out. We are Why God Why. Um, so you can find us at WGW Podcast. When you're sharing about this episode, use hashtag WGW Podcast. And Caitlin, you also have a, a author's website, yeah, don't you? Yeah, CaitlinChess.com, where you can find stuff about the book, but you can also find some spiritual practices and prayers for the election season. So that's something I think is pretty valuable. Mm. Mm. Well, we are going to post some of those because I think we are going to need a lot of those. So that's great. Um, and then you also were just on the Holy Post podcast. And what other podcasts have you been on oh, to? A lot right now. I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah. just, not uh, as good as the Why God Why podcast, but whatever. That's fine. No, no, none. This, yeah. Hey, I, I, we understand. Hey, it's fine. Hey, Phil Vischer and Sky Jathani, Peter Engler, John Amayo. Um, <laughs> you know, there you go. whatever it is. Uh, <laughs> you know, Bob the Tomato. Uh, anyways, on that note, uh, make sure you follow her, follow us, write a review. As I always say, give us five stars and write a great review. As John says, write what you feel, especially if it's five stars. So thank you so much for joining us at the Why God Why podcast. Have a great day. Bye.